My friends, um, uh, before we start, the outline that you've got is hopelessly wrong from point three <laughs> onwards. Um, <laughs> the outline that I've seen in has not ended up being the outline that I've decided to go with. So point three onwards, you can just scrub all of. And point three is now called priorities and work. And point four is entitled, what does all this mean for work? Okay, that's all you need to know. Um, I really sorry. This is um, for me. This has been the most complex talk in trying to, in terms of getting the ideas together in my head and then working out how to express them to you. Uh, and I've been working on it and working on it, and I still feel like it's not quite there. Uh, but hopefully, it will be helpful and useful. So I'm going to pray that God would help us to listen uh, and that it would be useful. Now let's pray. Uh, Father God, thank you so much uh, for Jesus. Uh, thank you that as members of him, we actually share together with one another as brothers and sisters in your family. And Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to join together today and hear your word and think about it. Father, we ask for the work of your spirit uh, that I might speak clearly and truthfully. And Father, we ask for each one of us that you would help us to hear you as you speak and to respond in faith and obedience. And Father, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, friends, if you remember, I left you at the end of yesterday with this little question. Um, yes, work is valuable and important and all that kind of stuff. But if Jesus is the Lord of all and his job in the world is to bring people to life in him so that at the judgment day they will share with him in eternity in ruling the world, then does that make one job more important than all of the others? Does preaching the gospel become more valuable than other things? Now, just to kind of let you know uh, kind of the, that my money is where my mouth is, so to speak, um, my main job at the University of New South Wales is to run our training program there amongst uh, the students. And part of what I do in particular is to persuade young men and women uh, to give up their day job, to give up their engineering or to give up their law or to give up their medicine or whatever it is, uh, and to come and to spend some time training with us in order to spend their, the rest of their life uh, full-time preaching the gospel. And as we do that, there are lots of complexities involved in that process, not least of which is the fact that people get angry at us, first of all, persuading their children from giving up lucrative careers in order to enter something less lucrative. But the bigger problem, the issue that gets put on the table, and rightly so, is are we creating two classes of Christians do we, by saying there is something really important, devalue what we do and how we do it and how we live our lives? And I want to say to you, that's a very significant and important question that we need to wrestle with. And in order to wrestle with that question, there are actually two different things that we need to talk a little bit about, I think. The first is, and this is always guaranteed to come up in this conversation, is the doctrine of vocation or calling. So uh, in the 1500s, uh, a guy called Martin Luther, who some of you will know of, uh, one of the great reformers, um, had a big question that he had to deal with in his day in terms of what holiness was. Because in his world, there was a pecking order in terms of holiness. Okay? The bishops and the priests were actually higher up the pecking order. And when people spoke about vocation or a calling, the priests and ministers were called and everybody else did whatever else it was that they did in life. And so Luther fought tooth and nail against the idea that they were more holy or more valuable or more significant than anybody else. And he would say things like, 
God hides himself in the ordinary social functions and stations of life, even the most humble. God himself is milking the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. Okay? Now, what he was trying to do, and what he was rightly trying to do, was to say that the milkmaid or the ploughboy or what, whoever, just as precious and just as important and just as significant in God's world. But you see, if that's true, then should I call anybody to give up their day job and go and become a, a gospel minister, so to speak? And, and not just that question, but more significantly, as Christians, are there some tasks in life, are there some things that we seek to do as God's people that are more important than others? Do we have priorities? Is it right to think of some things that I do as being more valuable than others? And if I do think that, what does that mean about the other things that I do that are less valuable and how do I put those two things together? So what I want to do is talk to you briefly about vocation. That's why we read 1 Corinthians 7, by the way. It's not, it is a passage about marriage, but it's something bigger than that. And I'm not really going to deal with the marriage stuff today. You might have thought it was weird when we read the passage. It's because of this issue of vocation. And then I want to talk a little bit about how we then act together as a body of God's people and the kind of priorities that we might have. We're going to flip over to 1 Corinthians 12 to have a look at that question. And hopefully it'll all hold together and make sense by we get to the end of the morning. All right, so what I want to start is with the question of vocation. And I want to talk to you a bit about Luther. The key to understanding what Luther said and how it applies to us is to think about how his day and his situation relates to us and to our situation. You see... Luther was completely right to fight against what he saw as being the folly and stupidity of people in his day. Particularly because there were people who were ministers, priests, bishops, whatever, who were lying, stealing, cheating, and etc., etc. And there's the ploughboy and the milkmaid down the road who are faithfully trying to obey and serve and follow Jesus Christ. And to think that one of those jobs makes you more holy than another one of those jobs completely overturns and misunderstands the nature of life. Now, how did he deal with that problem? It was by saying whatever job you have been called to, whatever your vocation is, that is a perfectly good and right place to serve God and you, you bring as much glory and honour to him, whatever it is, role that you play in, in life in society. Now, part of the reason that he said what he said was that in his world, nobody changed their station in life by and large you pretty much got what you were going to get into when you were born. If your father was a shoemaker, most likely you were going to end up as a shoemaker. If your father was a ploughman, then most likely you were going to grow up and plough fields. That was kind of how the world worked. And, and Luther, in order to say that everything is valuable, kind of said it doesn't matter where you've been called to, what your station in life is, which they thought has given you by God, that's what's been given to you. And your role is to obey God in that station in life. And one is not more significant or more important than another. And of course, you don't need to go very far in the Bible to realise that there's a great deal of truth in what he says. So we'll get to 1 Corinthians 12 in a minute. But you remember, the eye can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. The body exists for each other and there's no more important bit and less important bit and you can't say, you know, if you're an eye, I don't need earlobes. You can't say, if you're a nose, I don't need pancreases. Um, bodies need all of what we've got in order to function as a body. 
And so Luther was exactly right to fight in the way that he did fight against the problem that he saw. But I think we have made a mistake in translating what Luther said into the world that we live in. And the mistake is that we haven't understood what I think Luther did understand, if you read him carefully, is that in the Bible, vocation or calling is a word that relates to two different things and one of them is more important than the other. And to see that, I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, you remember from the reading, it's, Paul's dealing with this issue of singleness and marriage, and particularly some people are saying, look, I'm engaged. Should I actually go ahead and get married? Should I stay single? What should I do with my singleness? But in answering the question... He actually brings into play a bigger principle, if you like, that you see there in verse 17 and following. So let's have a look at that. He says, Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called, he should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called, he should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Etc, etc, etc. He goes on and talks about the various stations in life. And when you get to verse 24, you'll kind of see the conclusion. Brothers, each man, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation God called him to. Now, as you read that little chapter, that little, sorry, that paragraph, calling is a big deal. The word call occurs eight times, just over and over and over again. And in fact, it's even a bit more complicated that because in verse 20, where he talks about the situation... Situation is actually a translation of the same called word that's been translated called in every other point in the passage. So there's actually nine occurrences of the word called in this one little paragraph. But if you stop and you actually tease out and look at those callings, Paul seems to use the word called in two different ways in the passage. Now the first one and the most common one is kind of, he just assumes that you know what he's talking about. And an example of that is verse 18. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not become circumcised. Paul doesn't explain to you what when he was called means. He just kind of assumes that you will know what he's talking about. Now, when you get to verse 21 and 22, you start to get a hint of what he means by called. Verse 21, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. And similarly, he who was free man when he was called is Christ's slave. When he was called by the Lord. In fact, friends, in about 95% of the uses of the word call in the New Testament... This is the call that is spoken of. It is the call of the Lord Jesus to repent, give up your life, and come to him and serve him as your saviour and Lord. Um, I'll give you a couple of other examples of in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, verse 6. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Or uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and verses 11 and 12. You know 
that we dealt with, each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. That is mostly what the word called means in the New Testament is that God called out to you in the message about Jesus and says, give up your life and come to Christ. And it is the call of the gospel to become a Christian. And so when Paul says, if you were a slave when you were a called, he's saying, were you a slave when you became a Christian? Well, that's okay. It's okay to remain a slave. Were you free when you became a Christian? Stay free. Were you circumcised when you became a Christian? Don't get uncircumcised. Well, I'm not sure how that works. Uh, if you were uncircumcised when you became a Christian, don't go and get yourself circumcised. And what he's saying is that God gives you a call in the gospel and the call is to obey Christ. And it doesn't matter which one of those things was true of you, they can stay the same because that's not what is important about being a Christian. What's important about being a Christian is obeying God. But there is this funny little use, it appears, of calling in a place like chapter 7 and verse 20. Have a look at chapter 7 and verse 20 with me. Each one should remain in the situation. And remember I said that's the calling? Uh, so let me kind of translate that for you. Let each one of you remain in the calling which he was in when God called him. That is, Paul can use the word calling to describe not just being called as a Christian, but calling can also refer to your situation or circumstances in life. Now, when you stop and think about that, it's important. It's not unreal for Luther to use that sense of calling to describe your job as a ploughboy or a milkmaid or whatever else. But if you read the passage, calling doesn't just describe your job or your profession. It describes everything about who you are when you became a Christian. Were you circumcised or uncircumcised? Were you slave or free? Were you married or unmarried, etc., etc., etc.? So the second use of calling in the Bible is not just what job do you do, but who are you? Who is the person that God has made you to be? What are the circumstances that you find yourself in in life? And that second sense of calling, Paul speaks about because he knows that everything that you have has been given to you by God. Are you married? God's given it to you. Are you single? God's given you that. Are you circumcised? God's given you that in the past. Are you uncircumcised? God's given you that. Whoever you are, wherever you are right now, God has given you your life. But the calling of the gospel, the calling to become a Christian, enters into that call in your life, and it takes a priority, if you like. But all of that other stuff is part of what's God's given you and you don't have to change any of it. If you're single, don't, you don't need to go and get yourself married and you become a Christian. That's irrelevant. Now, as the passage goes on though, what does Paul say is most important? And here he gets back to his issue about being married and single and he says things like um, verse 27, are you married? Don't seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Don't look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marriage, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. He goes at great length to say, whatever circumstances you're in, it's okay. But you're not sinning if you change them. If you're single and you get yourself married, that's not a sin. That's good. It's a gift from God. You can go and do it if you want to. But you don't have to do it because that's not what is necessary for you as someone who is a Christian. But there are things that are necessary. 
You see, why if you were single might you go and seek to be married? Well, Paul says in the passage, because your godliness matters. And working out how to be godly might actually mean changing your circumstances in life in order to be godly. And as the the paragraph from the section goes on and he says, well, why would you choose to stay single? And his answer is because the single person is actually able to be more devoted and more single-minded in their pursuit of holiness and the service of God than someone who is married because their interests get divided by the very human now realities of living in relationships that make life at times confusing and For all of those who are married and have children in particular, you will know that your life is consumed by lots of things apart from thinking about Christian things because people wake up at 3am in the morning and at that point in time, the finer points of justification by faith alone are not the issues that are on the table. (laughs) But Paul, if, if you're going to wrap it all up, verse 35 I think expresses his point. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul says, your whole life is a calling, it's what God has given you, but into that whole life the calling of the gospel comes. And what I want you to do is to pursue the calling of the gospel, to live in undivided devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all the other things about your calling, you don't have to change them, but you may choose to change them in order that you may better honour Jesus. And honouring Jesus is the, the principle or the, the thing that rules our lives and it is to conform and control our decision-making as we live as Christians in the world. Now, can you see how all of that relates to what Luther was saying in his day? What he was communicating to people was your vocation in life, the situation you find yourself in, it's irrelevant. And whether you're the priest at the church down the road or you're playing the fields on Monday morning, that doesn't matter because what matters is your devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are as holy as an important and as significant and bring as much glory to God whatever role it is that you take. But here is the problem we take what Luther said and we then reapply it in our own context and we have taken vocation to mean not all there is about your life but your job in particular. You have been called to be a doctor. You have been called to be a scientist. You have been called to be an engineer. That actually is only a very limited sphere of what calling as far as the New Testament would use to describe vocation It's everything. Now, what is the problem with that? The problem with that is that we start to see our job as the primary or even the only sphere of our obedience. So I went to university with people who said to me, God has called me to be a doctor, and so it is impossible for me to go and be anything else, and I must be the best doctor that I can possibly be in order to honour God and show him that I have done what is necessary with the calling that he has given me. The problem is at that point in time, you've taken something that is actually negotiable according to the New Testament and started to put it in the centre place. You have been called to be a Christian. You may well be a Christian as a doctor, but you may choose to change that as well because that's not what's important. What's important is honouring Jesus. 
Okay? So if you were going to use the word vocation, and I would encourage you to use it, realise that it means not just my job, but it means the circumstances in life that God has given me. And I need to learn how to be obedient to God in all of the circumstances of life that God has given me. Okay? I need to be a good father or a wife, a husband, a mother. I need to be a good friend. I need to be a good son. I need to be someone who serves in my local church community. I need, I need to be someone who fulfills all the various responsibilities of my calling under God because I'm a Christian and I long to live those things out. All right, so that's the first part of the, the argument, vocation, putting vocation back in its right kind of framework. The second thing that I want to go to, and this is a kind of a, feels a bit like a change of gears, um, but I want to stop then and I want to ask, okay, that's that. Once you have this whole lot of your life sitting in front of you, this is your vocation and you need to work out how to be a Christian in that, how do you prioritise all of the various bits and pieces that you have lying in front of you? I just want you to just do this exercise for 30 seconds for me for a minute. I want you to write down what are your top, if, you, if your vocation is all of your life, what are your top five priorities in terms of working out how to be a Christian in this whole thing that God has given you in life? Uh, you can either talk to the person beside you or do it by yourself, however you want to do it. Give you a minute to knock yourself out trying to answer that question. All right, that's an impossibly difficult question, and I'm not really expecting you to come up with an answer to this necessarily. Um, but it's in, God has given me all of this life, and I have to work out how to live as a Christian in it. That involves making choices, right? I can't be and do everything all at the one time, every, all the time, every day. I make choices every day about what's significant and what's not. What will I invest my energy in? How will I spend my time? Now... What I want to know is, has Jeff taught you the shorter catechism? Absolutely. He has? He has? Yeah, I'm pleased about that. I, 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 I don't know whether you guys realise this. As good Presbyterians, and you may not even realise that you're Presbyterian, or good. Um, uh, as good Presbyterians in the shorter catechism, uh, you actually have an excellent answer to the question. Okay, what is the first question in the shorter catechism? What is the chief end of man? And what is the answer to the question, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Absolutely. See, he has taught you. It's a marvellous thing. (laughs) Did you say to spite him or despite him? (laughs) 
so as those who've been called to follow Jesus, our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And because we want to glorify God and enjoy him forever, then we will pray for certain things. They will long for certain things. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, what do you pray for? Your kingdom come and your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. We want to see people everywhere acknowledging Jesus Christ as Lord and seeking to do his will and live that out in their lives in this world. The Apostle Paul, I think, would put it like this, Colossians chapter 1, we proclaim Jesus admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labour, struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. Because Paul knows what God has done in Christ and knows that God is ultimately glorified by people turning to him and living their lives in obedience, he pours out his life for the sake of others knowing Jesus and growing in him and being obedient in their faithfulness and service to him. Now, in order to work out how to do that and make that part of our life, we need to talk about priorities, which I want to say are vital and dangerous all at the same time. Priorities are vital because priorities help us to work out how to run our life and they keep us from selfishness. Now, I say this, this is not meant to be kind of derogatory in any way, shape or form, but I do see some students at university who haven't quite kind of cottoned on to the concept of priorities. Um, When you can spend six hours a day in front of an Xbox, while it may be enjoyable, uh, I'm not sure that it is necessarily fruitful nor entirely God-glorifying a use of the precious gift of life that God has given you. You actually need to sort of start grasping some priorities and to see that there are other things in life apart from entertaining myself. On the flip side of that, I don't know whether you've ever noticed this, but do you know some people have a really clearly defined set of personal priorities? And I don't know whether you notice it about these people, but... Sometimes it seems that they would like everybody else in the world to have exactly the same clearly defined set of very significant and clear priorities that they have. And if you don't have them, then you're kind of missing the boat, right? And, uh, and priorities, as soon as you start to define them clearly, can become weapons in the hands of the proud to tell other people how they ought to live and what they ought to do, and etc., etc. We need them but they're dangerous. And in order to hold those two things together, I want to suggest to you that 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 gives us a marvellous picture of how those two things come together. Okay? Now, this is going to go very quickly, and I'm sorry about that. Uh, I just want to make a couple of points from 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. You need to go away and read it more for yourself afterwards and work out whether you, what you th- if you think what I'm saying is true. But what I want to say, first of all, is that Paul says... Every part in the body of Christ is really valuable. And if you want to read verse 14 onwards with me, I I love this passage. It's a a preacher's delight, this passage. Um, The body is not made up of one part but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. 
On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable and the parts that we think are less honourable we treat with special honour and the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honour to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. Now, I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, that being here with you this weekend, I don't see your lives and I don't know the ins and outs of it. But I feel like the vibe of you as a community is that you are a body of people who love one another and don't particularly care about who you are or what station in life you have or what job you do. And I want to commend you that if that is actually what you are in like in reality and haven't just put on the mask for the weekend, <laughs> that is a wonderful testimony to the work of God's Holy Spirit and the gospel amongst you. We have felt enormously warmly welcomed. My children disappeared within the first five minutes on the first of being here and I've hardly seen them for the rest of the weekend even the, the kids have loved them and they've played together and cared for them. And, and that, if that characterises you as a body of Christ, praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there is nothing and nobody more important than every single person matters. And matters because they're made in the image of the Lord Jesus and their salvation is valuable and significant for the glory and honour of Christ on the last day. But the really weird thing about 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 is if you would say that that was true, right? Every person is equal and valuable. Would you say that all gifts were equally valuable? The answer is, oh yes, of course, whatever you do and whoever you are, it's equally valuable. And yet at the end of chapter 12, chapter 12 and verse 31, Paul makes a startling statement. Eagerly desire the greater gifts... And I will show you the most excellent way. You see, the way that our world copes with saying that different people are all valuable is by saying that their function and all the things that they do are equally valuable. Your function and your being go together and people are valuable because all functions are valuable and all people are valuable. Paul says all people are valuable because they belong to the body and are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ but as people who belong to the body because of, and you need to read chapter 13 of yourself, but because of love, because love demands that you long that other people know Jesus and respond to him, then it's actually there are some things that you do that are more significant and valuable than others. Now he will apply that particularly, and come and look at chapter 14 and verses 1 to 4 with me. He'll apply that particularly in terms of whether you prophesy or speak in tongues but the point is much more widely applicable. Chapter 14 and verse 1, Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church because... We love, and because we long and desire what God longs for in the world, 
there are actually some things that are more valuable than others. I would rather speak to you in a way that you can understand and that will build you up in Christ rather than go and do something for myself, speaking tongues, edify my own spirit, and etc., etc., etc. You see, 1 Corinthians 12 says everybody is equally valuable. But there are some things that we do in church life that are more important than others because some functions have a greater significance and value in terms of seeing the church edified and in terms of seeing Christ glorified. That is, on the whole, speaking to someone about Jesus is more important than preparing their tax return. Teaching little ones in Sunday school about what it means that Christ loves them and dies for them is more important than designing a better bridge. And this is where it just becomes really complicated for us because we can see that there are some things more valuable than others and yet we know that all people are equally valuable and we know that God has given us our job, if you like, as part of the whole life of Christian obedience. Now, how do you hold all of those things together? And my answer is going to be with great freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ as a body who loves Christ and wants what Christ wants for the world. And I'm just going to end up with a series of just observations in relation to trying to hold all these bits and pieces together. And um, you can tell me what you think of my observations during question time. My first thing that I want to say, and this is really trying to tie everything that we've seen together this weekend in one place. If work that God gave us to do is to subdue the creation and see it all under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ... And by faith in Christ, we are renewed and our lives now work towards that end. You and I need to work out how to use the whole of our calling, our vocation, our situation in life to see Jesus being glorified and honoured. And that means holding all of the various commands and principles in Scripture together and trying to work out how to live them out in our life. What that means, first and foremost, I think, is that we need to actually make a distinction in our language between work and our job. Okay, So I'm just going to suggest this to you as a way of kind of going forward. I have a job, okay, or I might have several jobs. Whether they're paid or unpaid jobs, I have particular jobs that I do, you know. Uh, I'm a mum, I'm an electrician, I'm a lawyer, I'm a whatever it is. I have a job to do. But that job is not all of my work. My work as a Christian is to live my whole life for the glory of God and my job is a part of my life. Now my life needs then to be worked out in terms of how do I serve Jesus according to how he's made me and the situation that I find myself in in life. And what I want to encourage you to do, that means that there actually needs to be great freedom because different ones of you will work it out very differently from others. See, for some of you, your job is a great place. You're meeting lots of non-Christian people. You're encouraging people. You're having the opportunity to speak God's word to them. You're serving them. And and you could even go to work a bit more and there will be more opportunities for the gospel there and that would be a great thing. For others of you, your job is uh, difficult. 
and restricting and you only talk to one other person and the one other person doesn't like you very much <laughs> and, uh, and that's an incredibly difficult place to be but God calls on you still also to work and to have something profitable to do with your hands and to feed yourself and to feed other people. You see, there's lots of priorities that are playing into the decision that I make about how will I do my job. And the, the question that each one of us needs to ask is, as a Christian, what are the priorities that God has given me and where does my job fit in with all the rest of the priorities that God has given me? As a husband, a wife, a father, a mother, a son, a daughter, a friend, a church member, an elder... Uh, you can fill in all of the blanks there. Now, in terms of your actual job, which is, I think, what everybody came here this weekend hoping to hear about, um, there are certain fundamentals that being a Christian means at your job. Be faithful. When you're, at, when you're at your job, do your job. Okay? Honour your employee, employers, or if you are over employees, be a good boss to your employees. Work out how to do your job well and faithfully because that is part of what God has given you to do when you're in that space. Love the people in your workplace well. Do your job well in a way that serves and honours them. But secondly... It means I need to think about my job in relation to the rest of my life. Do I need to do the number of hours that I'm doing in my job in order to have enough money to feed my family and be generous to others? Are there other things that I could do with some of those hours at least that might achieve other things that would be valuable in terms of the growth of the kingdom? Now, all of you are going to answer that question differently and it's okay that you do. And partly even because you've got different personalities. And you contribute different ways. So the third thing that I want to say is that as you start to think about that, you need to realise I make a contribution as a body of God's people. Okay? The reason I take it that as a church you've chosen to invest your time, energy, money and resources for people like Warren and Jeff and Beck to kind of do their jobs full time is because you think that this going forth of the word of God is a good thing and you want them in your midst in order to lead you in the word of God. But they are not the church and do not make up the church, and you are all equally members of it. Those of you who beaver away doing all the little bits and pieces here, there and everywhere, according to the gifts and skills that God has given you, is actually contributing to the proclamation of the gospel in all sorts of different ways. And so as a body, you need to keep relating to each other. What could I do in the context of this body that's going to help us as a group of people see this goal of Jesus being glorified and honoured furthered? So it's not just me as an individual, but us as a group of people who belong to Jesus. That's our goal. How do I use what God has made and given me to be in order to pursue and seek that goal? A couple of other quick observations all of that means that when you leave your job, you may still be at work. A couple of random thoughts. When you go home, how do you think about your work at home? See, do you come home in order to be waited upon by other members of your household or do you actually see that whether you've got flatmates or a family or whatever your situation is, are you contributing in that context that God has given you 
in a way that's healthy and helpful and in a way that's been worked out and communicated with the people that you live with. Are you living as a Christian? Let me tell you about the challenge for me. So I'm a full-time Christian minister, right? What does that mean that I do on my day off? Stop being Christian? Cease to be other person-centred and become selfish? Can I tell you that the very great temptation is to do so? It's a profound temptation. I spend the whole rest of my life doing that. Surely I can have a day off just for me. That's a hopelessly unchristian way to think about life in the world. God's called me to be a Christian. Whatever I'm doing, even as I relax, to love the people around about me, to serve them well. Okay? And so as I think about me as a person, I want to think, how am I Christian in all of the spheres of my life? And do I need to take a little bit out of that sphere because really that sphere is being completely ignored? Now, you see the problem? I can't tell you in specific what any of you should do, which I actually think is a wonderful thing. (laughs) All I can tell you to do is work out how to love and obey Jesus. And if you know that your obedience to Jesus is falling short in some areas of your life because other things are consuming you in a way that they shouldn't, you actually need to make some decisions about how to say no to some of those things so you can do the other things that are necessary in order to act faithfully as a servant of Jesus in the vocation that God has given you, which is all of your life. All right, I'm going to stop talking there. Um, I know that there's been a whole lot of information. I think we are going to... There's going to be question time in the next session. So we've already got a bunch of questions, but if you have particular questions about what I've just said, please add those to the list and we'll try and work out how we can get to some of them at least in the next session. I'm going to pray now, I think. And are we going to... I'm, I don't know what's happening next. Are we about to... Yep. Yep. I'm going to pray and I'm going to hand over and these people will sort everything out. (laughs) Let's pray. Uh, Father God, thank you so much that in the Lord Jesus Christ, you set us free to obey you and honour you and serve you as your people. And Father, we thank you that that obedience is not just about one sphere of life or one activity, but it's about all that we are and everything that we do. And yet, Father, even as we hear that and experience that, that presents very great challenges for us. Each of us is aware of ways in which we use one part of our life as an excuse to ignore another. And each of us is also aware of of the wrestle of how we hold all those parts together in a busy world. Father, please give us your grace and wisdom to work out how to live well and obediently as your people both as individuals and together as a church, that we would seek that gospel word going out, that we would seek people coming to know Christ and being found in him, and that we would seek Jesus' name being sung by the praises of millions on that last day when he returns. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.